This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Well, thanks for being with us and welcome to this hour of the program. It is Afternoons on News Talk 770. Rob Breckenridge with you. Our telephone number 974-8255. That's 403-974-TALK. And you can also uh, send us your remarks via text at 770-770. Later in this hour, we'll look at the question of whether Alberta needs spending limits during elections. In the last election, uh, for example, the PCs led the way, spending about $4.5 million. It didn't work out so well for them. Uh, the NDP spent, I think, about one7 and the Wild Rose spent about one5 uh, the NDP is talking about a potential limit of $1.6 million in the next election, which, again, is, I guess, more or less what they spend. But do we need spending limits at all? And isn't it convenient now that the NDP, with the, the, uh, all the levers of government at their disposal, now want to limit how much their opponents can spend? So we'll talk about that after 1.30. Uh, of course, we uh, had two elections last year. Another was the uh, federal election, which saw the election of, of Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. And uh, it must have, I would think, marked an end to that, that nasty, horrible war on science that, that Stephen Harper waged. And we certainly heard so much about through Harper's uh, tenure. The slashing of uh, the, the ranks of scientists uh, at Environment Canada, and the gagging of scientists uh, who still had jobs, it must have been a very bleak time. So you would think now that the liberals are in power, that it's a, a new era, that the war on science is over, peace has prevailed, and, and scientists are, are happy and, and doing their job. Not necessarily. And maybe, just maybe, there never really was a, a war on science to begin with. Uh, David Aiken, Parliamentary Bureau Chief for Sun Media, has the scoop this week that the Justin Trudeau government is on pace this year to preside over the biggest ever recorded cut to the number of federal environment scientists. Well, how can that be? David Aiken joins us on the line today from uh, Ottawa. David, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem, Rob. In breaking news, literally just five minutes ago, not five minutes ago, I got a call from the press secretary for our environment minister, Catherine McKenna, to say, no, 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 we're, we're, we're going to have more scientists on the payroll, or at least as many as Harper's last year. Because for three, well, three days now, uh, the only numbers that have been out there have, were numbers published just before the budget. Mm-hmm. And those numbers showed that, yes, indeed, there was going to be uh, in, in the Environment Department, a whole lot fewer scientists on the payroll versus uh, last year, and a single biggest, biggest ever measured reduction in scientists year over year. But there was an extra $120 million in the budget, and I'm about to see the numbers, maybe before we finish chatting, they'll be in my email inbox, that they're going to use that money and there'll be more scientists. So there may, the, the issue around numbers of scientists, yeah, the Trudeau gang may do as well as the last couple of Harper years, or a little bit better. But the bigger issue, and you touched on this in the beginning, was there a war on scientists? Chris Turner, Calgary's Chris Turner, ran for the Green Party a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, wrote a book called The War on Science, Harper's Willful Blindness, something or other, and essentially taking together a whole lot of essentially anecdotes, complaints from scientists that the Harper gang wasn't listening to them and was doing them all wrong. And there are lots of anecdotes like that. But what we got in the last, I don't know, week, uh, week or so, was some, some data, so the, the documentary record on this war on science. And let me put this in front of you, because this is, this is 
data from liberal government ministers, the health minister, the environment minister, natural resource minister, all these ministers that employ government scientists. They were asked, how many media interviews did government scientists give in the last year that Harper was in charge? Twelve months, the last twelve months of Harper, when scientists were being muzzled across the government, how many media interviews were there? Answer? 1,500. That's like four a day, scientists coming out doing interviews. That's a very ineffective muzzle, if you ask me, Rob. I don't know. That's the last year of the Harper gang. And then, then the liberals were asked, listen, did you, did you send out a memo saying the muzzle is lifted, scientists are able to speak? And again, every single liberal minister was asked and had to provide an answer in writing department. You know what the answer was? No. There's been no change in the communication policies for scientists. It's the same as the last gang. So that kind of, I guess, if you ask me, does raise some questions. Was, in fact, this war on science real, or was it, in fact, maybe something that the scientists' union, the union that represents government scientists, something that they were doing because they certainly didn't like the Harper government, and they ran an anybody-but-Harper campaign, and mm-hmm. it was a nice, convenient narrative for them to go to war with. Yeah, that, that was the bigger issue, was whether scientists were free to speak about uh, certain issues or speak about the research they were doing, right? And I think the Harper government had a, a bit of an obsession with message control, and they didn't want you know, bureaucrats Every deviating from that. You're right, right yeah. well, exactly. Um, but I, I think it's significant to note, then, that, that nothing has really changed in that respect. Well, and this is something that the New Democrats are a little bit annoyed about, of course. Remember, they're the party out there, the third party. They were going to also promise some real change. And now they're saying, uh, we're quite different. Uh, we're, we're quite uh, uh, annoyed uh, that there's been no difference. There's been no, quote, hashtag real change. That the communication policies of the Harper government are, by and large, the communication policies of the current government. And here is that policy in a nutshell. If you're a subject matter expert, and that's the phrase they use, and that stands for scientist or a tax analyst or an economist or a historian, whatever your job title is in the, in the government. If you're a subject matter expert, you are free to conduct a media interview about your subject that you're an expert in. You're not free, however, to discuss government policy without approvals from managers and bosses. And why is that? Because policy is the purview of politicians. And in fact, there was a memo to the government immediately uh after the uh, election saying hey uh scientists can speak about their stuff but it's not really a good idea to have them you know talking about government policy that is quite appropriately the purview of elected officials so that was the policy of the last government and is essentially the policy of this government that said the minister of the environment who i, I talked to yesterday Catherine mckenna again um she has said she, she she told us in this interview that she she has been encouraging scientists in her department. And there's about 3,600, 3,800 scientists that work just for Environment Canada. She's been encouraging them to, to speak about their work. But again, we look at the media interviews that they were asked to report on by month for the last two years, and it's, they're giving pretty much the same number of media interviews now that they were when Harper was in charge at Environment Canada and everywhere else. Yeah, that's quite fascinating. Now, you know, the other side of it, and, and Andrew Leach out here in Alberta at the University of Alberta, who's been in the news a lot here in this province lately, I remember he wrote about it at the time and said, you know, there, there are different sides to it. It's one thing to talk to an environmental scientist uh, about a certain policy, but the governments get a lot of different advice. You might have an environmental scientist saying, you know, we should uh, address this because this could potentially be an environmental problem. Then you might have an economist who says, well, hang on, because here's what it's going to cost to pursue that kind of policy. If we only go to the environmental scientist, 
we're not getting the other side of the story and what the government heard from from economists, for example, and other experts. So from a media perspective, David, if we just go to a scientist who says, I tried to warn the government about this and they wouldn't listen, does that give us the full story? Yeah, well, the government itself, and I'm going to quote a memo from the top, a top deputy minister at Treasury Board who said as much uh, to the incoming liberals that, no, it is not enough, that um, science is but one factor, generally speaking, that politicians will consider as they set priorities about uh, how to spend and allocate government resources. Uh, it's often a very important uh, factor, but it is uh, one of several. And you bring up Andrew Leach, who's a great case in point. Andrew's one of my favorite uh, economists. When I want to get some understanding about carbon taxes and how they work or regulations to cut greenhouse gas emissions, Andrew's a really bright guy and speaks in languages that you and I, journalists, that we can understand. He's, yeah. he's great at that. But you know what? Before he ended, he's at the University of Alberta right now, up at Edmonton. And uh, before he went there, I guess while he was there, he took a leave of absence to come to Ottawa. And he was working for the government. And when he came here, I went, Andrew, that's great. So you can sit down and tell me all the secrets about what's going on inside government. And Andrew, to his great credit, no, he had to say, I really can't, I can't tweet. I can't talk. Uh, I'm not going to blog about the work I'm doing for the government because it's the government's work. And they owe me that, and, and I owe them that responsibility. So he, he recognized that, you know, it's a little bit different, that government advice from, in this case, an economist, but also if you're a scientist, has to be put in some broader context. So that was his response. But again, there were some scientists, and, and you know what? Let's step. Let's, let's go back to thirty thousand foot view for a second. Actually, there's thirty nine thousand people who are scientists that work for the federal government, and there's two hundred and eighty odd thousand people that are overall government employees. Yeah. And when Stephen Harper took over in two thousand six, did he start cutting the civil service? No. In fact, for his first few years in office, the civil service, the actual number of people working for the government, grew by eleven percent. And you know what? So did the number of scientists grew by about 11%. But after the 2011 election, Harper had a deficit, and he'd, he'd just run and won a majority government saying he was going to cut the deficit, get back to balanced budgets. And one of the ways he went about that was by reducing the number of civil servants. So in the last two years, he's actually cut, in absolute terms, the number of overall civil servants. And lo and behold, the number of scientists working for the government has also been reduced it, to the same proportion, they haven't been singled out for special treatment. They, the number of scientists has been reduced in proportion to the reductions of the overall civil service. Notably, the union that represents science scientists started squawking at those overall cuts were happening. And the way the, the union framed the squawking about scientists was to say, this is Harper's war on science. In fact, if anything, it was Harper's war on the civil service. He was cutting across the board, everybody, artists, economists, accountants, you name it, they, those numbers are all dropping. So I think that's part of the bigger picture for this issue around scientists. Well, and, and if, if the government's not really, the current government is not really reversing that, maybe adding a few more scientists, but no more than, than was the case under Harper, um, at what point do we see a similar kind of pushback? You, you mentioned the union, the Professional Institute of the Public Service of Canada represents these, these scientists. Are they still giving the, the liberals the, the benefit of the doubt on this? No. In fact, what we got this week as well, this is another sort of exclusive little bit for, for us in the Sun, was a memo, uh, a pre-budget submission that that union, PIPS it's called, has submitted to Bill Morneau. And this is standard that they put a, every year, they put, put in a pre-budget submission asking for stuff in the budget. Not surprisingly, one of the things they asked for is more hiring more scientists. They want to hire 1,500 more scientists. Fine. But also in this memo, they say, you know what? 
the Trudeau government is as bad as the last guys in terms of, quote, muzzling scientists. They, they believe scientists were muzzled. We, we've argued that point, and we've talked about whether that you know, may not be true or not. But in any event, uh, they say it, that's what the Harper government is doing, and they say the Trudeau government has continued to muzzle our scientists. Specifically, their members who are scientists are having trouble going to academic conferences and talking about their government science work. And they say that the application of this, quote, unmuzzling policy has been uneven, that's their word, across different government departments. So the answer is, you know, new boss, same as the old boss, for better or worse, depending on your viewpoint, that, uh, that the union that represents government scientists is still saying uh, they don't feel, got scientists don't feel comfortable talking and saying whatever they want to the media. Again, though, I go back to, and yet they keep giving media interviews, so go figure. Well, no kidding. Fascinating stuff. Uh, people can follow this. You're on Twitter, at David Aiken. Uh, David, thanks it. so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Cheers. All right, take care. David Aiken, Parliamentary Bureau Chief for Sun Media, on Twitter at David Aiken, uh, davidaiken.com, and, of course, you read him in the Calgary Sun and, and the other Sun newspapers. Uh, so isn't that interesting? That nothing's really changed, it seems. Now, the environment minister disputing uh, part of, of David's story this week, but David's going off budget numbers that, that show the government is going to preside over for the reduction of government scientists this year. The environment minister, Catherine McKenna, disputing that, saying, no, we are going to hire more scientists. So we'll probably be back to around where we were, the peak under Stephen Harper. As David points out, by 2014-2015, the number of scientists at Environment Canada peaked at an all-time high of 3,830. The current forecast has 3,386 science jobs at Environment Canada. So that would be 12% less than Stephen Harper two years ago. So we don't seem to have any more scientists, and it doesn't seem as though, as though those scientists are any more free than they were before to give interviews or to speak out. So are we going to call this the liberal war on science, or does it mean, conversely, that there never was a war on science to begin with? 974-8255 is a telephone number, 403-974-TALK. You can text us as well, 77770. We're back with more right after this. All right, just by the way, coming back to the point Rick was making before the bottom of the hour, and he's not totally off base, right? This became an issue because of the, the $20,000 tab was involved. And if this had all been done in Edmonton, it would have been uh, much less of an issue. But it is true that we do put the bill for security. It's uh, under the Solicitor General that this is handled. Uh, back in August of 2014, when this first broke, CBC News did report on some of the details around this. Let's mention this quickly here. Uh, so this is a dispute between a cabinet minister and a sibling. So CBC News has viewed the cabinet minister's family law court file, which is the subject of a publication ban and forbids identifying any of the individuals involved. The court documents show the cabinet minister's sibling had sought an emergency restraining order against the minister in relation to a family dispute. The restraining order has been removed. At one point, police were called in relation to the dispute. Uh, Lukasik at the time told CBC that he was dealing with what was he has described as an urgent government matter. Received a phone call in the middle of the night from a very distressed cabinet minister who felt that the cabinet minister was in danger. Police were on the way. It was an urgent situation. 
Lukasik said he called a lawyer for the cabinet minister. The next day engaged in uh, telephone conversations and video conferencing with the premier's office. It was determined that we need to make sure the cabinet minister is not in any danger, that if there is protection services that need to be afforded, that was looked into. Wanted to make sure the cabinet minister has the legal representation that the cabinet minister needs and documents were exchanged relevant to the essence of the actual issue. And what it was that precipitated this. It turns out this was a matter that did not touch government. The cabinet minister retained independent privately legal counsel and that was the end of the matter. So why the publication ban? It's not clear. So... How much more, I guess, do we need to know at that point? And if the names are under a publication ban, that goes beyond privacy legislation. But it was a situation where they looked at whether government security detail needed to be provided to a cabinet minister. They're the ones who have to make that decision. Turned out not to be the case. And it became an expensive uh, endeavor. Uh, In the meantime, speaking of expensive endeavors, uh, a lot of money spent uh, in the last election uh, here in Alberta. Uh, with the PCs uh, leading the way, spending over $4 million in the last campaign. Obviously not much to show for that money. Uh, The New Democrats, however, uh, have proposed that the next election, 2019, we assume, would have some some limits in place. Uh, That parties should have to operate under spending limits, overall spending limits, riding spending limits. Uh, New Democrat MLA Graham Sucha the NDP MLA for Calgary Shaw, as uh, he's the one taking up the mantle on this. He proposed it a committee, wrote an op-ed for the Calgary Herald about it. We've reached out to him, told he's away until uh, the 12th. Uh, but they're proposing uh, a spending cap of $1.6 million, which coincidentally is pretty close to what the NDP spent in the last election. But, of course, going into the next election, they'll have all the levers of government at their disposal. They'll be the ones that get to announce the new schools and the new hospitals and the new roads. And none of that falls under any kind of an election uh, spending cap. Uh, Jen Gerson has a great piece today in the National Post uh, about all of this. And, uh, well, look at that. She joins us on the line here. What a coincidence. Jen, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, what, what do you make of this idea? Is, would, would Alberta be unique, or do other provinces have these these kinds of limits? Do you know? Other provinces have these kinds of limits. Um, so, there's nothing. I mean, Alberta is generally a bit behind the curve in terms of our uh, campaign spending and election um, laws. Um, that's recently changed with some of the um, laws that the uh, NDP were, were very right to enact when they came in office. Um, I think right now the the most wild west of any province is BC. Um, so Alberta is a little bit better than that. Uh, and um, the, the, the um, per voter, um, how should I say, the per voter, voter caps that they're proposing or, or suggesting are not entirely unreasonable when you look at them in comparison to other provinces, but there are some slight problems um, when you really drill down into them. Um, for example, um, Ontario, I think, has a per voter cap of something like $1.30 in spending per voter, and that's between the central parties and the constituency association parties. It's divided between the two. What the NDP is proposing is actually pretty similar to, similar to that. However, in the Ontario case, you can um, exempt quite a lot from that cap, for example, research and polling. And um, in the other case, in, in Ontario's case, you have tend to have much larger constituencies. So individual 
um, uh, people who are running for office have much larger budgets to work with. So mm-hmm. even though they have to reach more voters, they have more actual cash in hand to do that. Um, and of course, you get the economies of scale issue, which you don't get in Alberta. So um, it's not crazy. I, I, don't, I don't think it's crazy to, to talk about a spending cap. Um, it's, it's not unreasonable. But after discussing it with a couple of people in politics and a couple of strategists and a couple of people at the party level, uh, generally the sense I have is people would, would, would be okay with a cap, but not at the numbers that the NDP are proposing. The, the numbers that the NDP are proposing are just too low. It's not really workable. And they're so low, in fact, that, that there's a concern that it would give the NDP a real incumbent advantage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, I, I, I do wonder, what, what are we trying to achieve here? Is this about trying to level the playing field somehow? Is this a belief that, that money is corrupting politics? Why, why are we even talking about it to begin with? I think there are two things happening. I think that whenever um, politicians propose spending or campaign reform, that, that generally is popular with voters who are innately suspicious of money in politics and innately suspicious of, of you know, who's pulling the strings and how they control money in politics and all that. Um, I think what's actually happening is that uh, the NDP is being pretty grossly out-fundraised by the Wild Rose, and um, a spending cap would be a way to limit the strategic advantage that the, that the Wild Rose is starting to open up for itself by the fact that it has, it's going to have more money in its coffers when uh, the next election rolls around. Because, you know, as you point out in your piece, they're, they're, they're being out-fundraised, certainly by the Wild Rose. Uh, we saw in the last by-election that was held in Calgary, the NDP finished fourth. Um, so maybe it's not a coincidence that they're now thinking about this already. No, not at all. And, and it certainly can't be. And we would be made to say. And then the other problem I think that, that people need to be a little bit more aware of is that, you know, it's very, very easy to say, well, money in politics, it's all corrupt, blah, 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 blah. Um, but when you actually look at the meat and potatoes of what goes into running a political campaign, I mean, it costs money. There's just no way around that. And just because it costs money doesn't mean it's evil. And just because people donate to political parties doesn't mean they're corrupt. That is, that is a normal part of the political process, and it's a healthy part of the political process. Um, it, you know, it becomes a problem when you have what they have in the U.S., where you have you know super PACs and billionaires basically running the show. That's crazy, and, and everybody's in agreement that that's too far. But what we have in Canada is comparatively a cottage industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we tend to rely enormously on grassroots donors. Um, since the federal funding laws came into effect, I think the uh, federal um, maximum donation is something like $1,300 per donor. That That is not unreasonable. You're not getting billionaires you know, running election campaigns when you have those types of limits in place. So we actually have a pretty good, pretty healthy, pretty non-corrupt political system. Um, and especially since the NDP banned uh, union and corporate direct donations, yeah. that's really cleaned up a lot of what happened in Alberta. And so they deserve all due credit for that. Um, but, you know, if you actually sort of, so, so they're proposing a, a cap of between, I, I think, like forty dollars to $50,000, depending on the constituency. And, you know, if you actually, that, and someone like you and me, who, you know, don't make a lot of money or whatever, that sounds like a lot of money, like forty dollars to $50,000, my God, blah, blah. But if you actually start to look at what it costs to run a campaign, I mean, run a campaign office alone is going to run you 10000 Right. Um, Actually, hiring most campaigns at the constituency level will probably put a couple thousand dollars away for staffing costs for things like um, a campaign manager 
or a volunteer coordinator. Both of those are paid, generally paid positions. These are people who need to take um, experienced people, professional people who need to take time off their jobs. So they typically command rates of a couple thousand bucks to run a two month campaign. Um, on top of that, uh, the cost of printing signs, printing pamphlets, all of that, tens of thousands of dollars. And also you can't really reuse signs or buy them before the RIP period. Those are expenses during the RIP period. And then that's before we even get into the conversation about advertising, digital advertising, television advertising, and and, and newspaper advertising. So, um, you know, you start to do the math on a lot of this stuff. And, and a lot of people were telling me, you know, at the constituency level, any kind of voter identification, you wouldn't be able to afford to do. That can cost you between twenty dollars and $50,000. Voter identification is a really important part of democracy because it means that the candidate finds out who his supporters are and is able to reach those supporters. Um, so, you know, the act of communicating isn't free. The act of running a campaign isn't free. Um, it does cost money to do these things. And, you know, we don't live in some utopia where a candidate can go on Twitter and attract a following and get elected. That's 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 a very small part of what politics is. And, and you know, it's not nefarious. That's just the reality. Now the other the, the wrinkle in all of this is that the spending limits would only apply during the writ period, and, and we're in a province where ostensibly we have fixed election legislation in place, so we kind of know when the next election is going to be. So that does provide the opportunity where parties could spend a whack of money outside the official writ period. Um, yes, and that would be if they, you were to put a cap in place. Uh, that is essentially what would happen. You would you would shift a lot of spending to pre-writ spending. Um, there are downsides to that, and it's not necessarily better for demo- democracy that this is happening. Um, one, uh, it, it just extends the writ period, essentially, because now lots of spending happens pre-writ. And the two is that it also gives the, the incumbent a, a huge advantage again, because the government going into a period knows when the election is going to get called, so they can start timing their announcements and their spending and their press releases as the government Right, going in before that writ drop, writ drops. Now, an incumbent government always has that that advantage to some extent, but when you put a huge cap on spending, um, it limits the ability of of other opposition parties to to battle against that and fight against that. All right. Well, I'm I'm curious to see where this will go because the idea of a cap might make sense to a lot of people, but why 1.6 million is the magic number and not say 3 million or or 4 million? Right. I mean, it's all very arbitrary. It seems. Yeah, and I think that they're 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 picking that cap kind of um, based on what ha- a general sense of what's happening in other provinces, also how much they spent. Um, the 1.6 million, I should say, is, is central party spending that they're proposing. In addition to that, there there would be about a 40 to 50 thousand dollar per constituency cap, which I think works out to about 3.4 million on top of that, um, at the constituency level. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, essentially it's an arbitrary number. I mean, generally the sense that I get from people is that a central party would be happy spending closer to two, having the ability to go close, maybe up, up to three, um, that if they could do that, they'd be, they'd be more or less comfortable. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's not like these, these caps are wildly off. I just think that it's a negotiation conversation that needs to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, people can read your piece uh, in today's post, uh, nationalpost.com. Jen, thanks for coming on with us here. Appreciate it. Yes, thanks for having me. All right. Jen Gerson, columnist and digital editor for uh, Full Comment to the National Post. Her thoughts on why we don't necessarily need to go down this path. So do people believe that, that spending, election spending, needs to be reined in? I think that it's a little redundant. If we've already got rules in place that limit how much money you can give to a party in the first place, 
Well, that by definition is going to tie the hands of the party and how much money they have to spend in the first place. And the notion that money can buy elections. Well, the PC has spent far more than any other party in the last election, and look what it got them. 974-8255 is our telephone number. Let's take a break, and we'll come back. More thoughts on this when we return. It's afternoons on News Talk 770. Welcome to this hour of the program. It's afternoons on News Talk 770. Appreciate you being with us. Rob Breckenridge, your host. 974-8255 is our telephone number. You can text us as well, 770-770. We'll talk about cheerleaders later in the hour, uh, specifically hockey cheerleaders. It seems like a misnomer, but there are more NHL teams that have these so-called ice girls. These, these teams of what are essentially cheerleaders. Now, some of them dance around in the stands. There are those who go on the ice during the TV timeouts and skimpy outfits and, and shovel off the ice. Uh, the Edmonton Oilers announcing uh, yesterday that they're going to cancel the so-called Octane Girls. Uh, we're going to hear from one uh, hockey writer and blogger, though, who, and she's a female, I guess it should be pointed out, who has defended this practice, that there's nothing wrong with teams having these. But we'll get into that after 2.30. Off the top of this hour, though, I want to talk about carbon taxes. And I guess the opposition to carbon taxes, certainly it's become a huge issue here in Alberta. And let me just play for you a little bit. We, we got into this with Brian Jean last week as I attempted to ask him a bit about, well, how does he plan to address emissions? Because he said in the last election that it's something that, that should be addressed. Last election talked about the importance of addressing carbon emissions. So if it's not putting a price on carbon, what is it? I think it's negotiating with the rest of Canada and the rest of North America and the world to work in lockstep together, row in the same boat towards the same goal. And if you're off step with the rest of the world, then you're either beating up your own industry, making it non-competitive and sending jobs elsewhere, and clearly not doing anything for the environment. And this carbon tax does nothing for that. $285 million out of the $3 billion is going to go back by way of rebates. So the rebates to Albertans is going to be insignificant. And it's not going to matter whether you're a wealthy Albertan or a poor Albertan. You're not going to uh, get very much money back from this rebate. And I would say most Albertans are not going to get anything back. People that receive a calculation of less than $100 receive nothing. So there's going to be very few people that receive any benefit. And frankly, the $3 billion, if it was actually a revenue-neutral carbon tax, you could call it a carbon tax. This is just a tax grab. Well, because, why don't we do that then? Well, because they're not putting the money back in to make carbon neutral or encourage people not to use carbon-driven devices. But you said you'd end the carbon tax. Why not say, look, we'll leave a, a price on carbon, but we're going to cut other taxes and make it truly revenue neutral? Well, that is a possibility, and that is a situation that other jurisdi- jurisdictions have looked at. But I Okay, so I said it might be a possibility. But don't expect them to start going around Alberta talking about keeping the carbon tax in place and reducing other taxes. So are conservatives missing the boat on this policy front? Our next guest uh, says they are. Certain a couple of interesting pieces uh, recently in the National Post about it. Stephen Gordon is an economics, uh, economics professor at Laval University and uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Hi there, Stephen. Hello. Well, what did you make uh, from, from, just as an example, I think Brian Jean sort of represents the current line of thinking from, from a lot of conservatives right now, is that we, we shouldn't be putting a price on carbon because it's not going to make much difference. Well, that's, the, you know, that's really the issue. About, that's why it's a problem, actually, because it's a collective action problem. The way the collective action problems work is that uh, individual efforts don't do anything. It takes everybody to, to participate. And so if you're saying that, well, yeah, if we don't do anything, you know, we're not going to solve the problem on our own. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's right. That's why it's a problem. If it were the, if, if were the case, that it would be quite straightforward. Um, 
if he's saying that we could we could just free ride on everyone else's efforts, fine. Uh, that's also why it's a problem because everyone is making can make the exact same calculation. So um, I'm not really sure where he's going with this. Uh, the fact that the, the the point about you know not going too far out of line with the partners about you know other jurisdictions. Well, I mean, my understanding is that that was actually a constraint that was taken into account in the Alberta uh, uh, carbon tax. There, you know, the, the amount that was at was at a certain point where um, I think the way the point was like you're going to displace carbon and not reduce it. Um, and so, you know, people are aware of this. And the my understanding is that uh, the the program that was uh, proposed for Alberta took that idea, you know, took, took that factor into into account. Okay, well, you know, and it, it, it puts these politicians in an awkward position because, on the one hand, they say they do want to address emissions, but they, they don't like a tax. We had Jason Kenney on the other day, for example, and I put the question to him, and he said, well, you know, when I was part of the federal government, we had uh, effective regulations in place that, uh, that, that reduced emissions. So here's a conservative who's arguing for regulations over a yeah, tax. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the part that, that, that's really the part that sort of uh, I, I don't get. Um, you know, if you, you, you're not really a big fan of using the word conservative economics, but I mean, if you're going to if you're going to use that label, uh, you'd go back to someone like Milton Friedman, and you know, he, you know, when he was writing about these issues, he was quite clear. You know, you should just put it, you know, for, put a tax on the emissions. I mean, so the real pro, the basic problem with uh, emissions or pollution generally is a lack of uh, property rights. You know, nobody owns the atmosphere. You know, if it, it was if it's question of pollution, it's like some guy wanting to dump garbage in your backyard. Um, you guys could work it out. If, you, you know, if he's willing to pay you enough, you probably let him do it. Um, nobody owns the atmosphere. And so that's what governments have to do, is sort of step in and act as if uh, you know, they're, they're the owner of the resource, the, the atmosphere, and charge for using it. So that's the, uh, that's the way, basically, of a market failure. You fix the market failure and let the market work. Um, that's not regulation. Regulation is... You know, it's basically command and control, and I don't understand how a you know, political tradition based on you know free markets and you know freedom generally uh, would be more comfortable with a regulate regulation regime, regime, a command and control, instead of just doing the most the least um, intervention as possible, impose a tax, set a price, and then let people react to the market signals uh, to this you know the price signals. Uh, as they wish. Yeah, there's there's one quote from Milton Friedman. I think he, he talked about it a lot, so he probably said it in different ways on different occasions. But on the question yeah. of, of pollution, he said, the best way is not to have bureaucrats in Washington write rules and regulations saying that a car has to have this or have that. The way to do it is impose a tax on the cost of the pollutants emitted by a car and make an incentive for car manufacturers and for consumers to keep down the amount of pollution. So instead of Ottawa or, or Edmonton dictating the rules, uh, it allows industry to figure out how best for them to address the yeah. problem. And, uh, you, and, the, and an extra advantage is, you know, th- those, extra, those extra revenues can be used to mitigate the other costs. If you just have re- regulations, you have all the costs, and it's a pure dead loss. Uh, with, 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 with at least with the tax, you get some extra revenues that can be used for, for other things. Uh, you can use it to offset the cost to lower-income houses, you, ha- ha- households. You can use it to finance the reduction in other taxes. I mean, it, it actually gives you um, an extra, an extra, um, an extra free hand to deal with other, other things as opposed to with just regulations. 
So your initial column on this drew quite a reaction, and you, you followed it up with that's, the... That's kind of surprised about that. I think no one ever reads me. <laughs> you, you were surprised about that, were you? Oh, I mean, yeah, like I say, like, like, I mean, I, it's, like, it's not the first time I've said something like that. Well, what, what prompted you to revisit it, or what, what, did, what was it about some of the response that you felt kind of missed the point? Well, basically the fact that the conservatives, the these conservatives are out of power. They should, this is the point where they can revisit past mistakes and say, okay, all right, you know, you, you know, now that we're out of power, this is the time we can sort of, you know, uh, you know, maybe abandon um, policy uh, uh, um, positions that we'd had before and adjust, you know, move, move around, reconfigure and go forward. And, you know, it's been a year and it's not happening. So uh, it's like, this is, it was my event, my little, my little uh, remark on, this is not what you're supposed to do uh, when you're trying to um, recharge your intellectual batteries. Right. I mean, part of the argument here in Alberta that I hear from people a lot is that this is a, a new tax on top of all the other taxes we have to pay. The, the, the government did not try to make this revenue neutral in the sense that yeah, maybe BC that has done. That doesn't mean, but that doesn't mean, as you said, uh, you know, the, the, you know, uh, to Brian Jean, that doesn't mean conservatives can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, the NDP is not a, is not going to be a small government party. Uh, you guys also have, you know, Alberta had also the problem of the huge loss in revenues from uh, from royalties, and so you know, I mean, sometimes there's a need for 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 more revenues. Uh, you know, I, I could, I probably could, I could have just as easily written that uh, column using the HST instead of the carbon tax, and it would be pretty much the same. Um, so, you know, there's uh, there are other things, there are other things going on in Alberta, um, but you know, you really can't blame the NDP for following through on its mandate. Um, I'm basically saying the Conservatives don't have to do what the NDP does; they can do they do what they want. And I just don't understand why what they want is regulations instead of uh, using a market-based um, approach. Well, how much of the argument for a carbon tax, though, is is a revenue argument that this is a way to uh, to generate uh, revenue? None, none, none. That's mm-hmm. when people are pre- proposing it. All they want is the price of carbon to go up. If um, if there was some magic way of assigning co- uh, property rights to the, to the atmosphere, and the owner of the atmosphere could insist on being compensated for degrading it, then uh, the, the price would go up and the problem would go away. Um, the uh, the revenue neutral approach, I mean, really the whole way, the, the fact that it generates revenues is, a, is sort of like a, um, a byproduct, a, uh, you know, and a secondary effect, um, you know, a symptom or whatever, a side effect, rather, I guess, a side effect of the carbon tax. It's, that's not why it's there. It's just, just there to increase the price. The fact that it gives, gives revenues just okay, means you have to deal with it somehow, but that's not why it's there. Right. Now, it's interesting because I, I don't get the sense that B.C. has suffered necessarily, but, but part of the case against the carbon tax is the, the competitive advantage that we're going to do this, but our competitors aren't, therefore we're at a disadvantage. What do you make of that? Well, that's that's the thing about you know moving you know all in the same all in the same direction. Like you know, BC has already moved. Other jurisdictions in Canada certainly have. Um, yeah, there's you have, you have to worry about what's going on in the states, but you know they you know it's uh, the uh, that imposes limits to what you can do. You know, um, but doesn't mean you can't do anything. Uh, so what's your sense of where this debate is going? Because uh, you know, we have a government about in Alberta that has embraced carbon pricing. It sounds like uh, the, the current yeah, Liberal government's going to embrace it. That, uh, 
I mean, you know, this is the weird thing too. The, uh, we have the Alberta NDP government has been persuaded to accept market approach bases, you know, market based approach approaches to the problem, and the Conservatives haven't. I don't, I don't get this at all. Well, it, it is ironic. Uh, at the yeah. same time, though, I mean, the, the, the concept of price and carbon is market-based, but certainly the NDP has a very interventionist response in terms of uh, how they intend to direct that money and, and oh, how yeah, they'd sure. like that's to see uh, the grid the, structured, and, et cetera. And if, the, uh, and if the conservatives could just sort of uh, focus more on that part, where, which really is a you know, pretty political uh, debate of, you know, of, of the size of government and what you want, you know, how, how interventionist you want the government, government to be, um, so, so that would be that would be the what really bother me. Uh, I mean, that's a pure political debate. Actually, doesn't really matter, matter much as far as the economics goes. But you know, fine, politics is different. Um, but that's not what they're doing. You know, they're yeah. they're they're, con, um, they're confounding um, the actual revenue part as, uh, and the the uh, the price part into one issue, and it and it really is two separate issues. They should they should they should be buying into one, and then making their stand on the other. Because I guess the option is then, if you're going to oppose a price on carbon, your, your options are, I'm going to try to reduce emissions through some other means, regulations primarily, or I'm not going to do anything, right? Yeah, and, and if you want to, uh, um, you know, go into not do anything, that's a very different argument, of course. And, uh, you know, and, and at this point, they kind of have to, you know, accept uh, people at the work that they actually do see as a problem that requires some, some kind of action. Yeah. All right. Well, fascinating stuff, Stephen. We'll leave it there. Uh, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Take care. Stephen Gordon, uh, economics professor, Laval University, uh, blogger and columnist as well. And so a couple of pieces he wrote for the National Post about this. Uh, the first one that uh, he argues conservatives are dismantling their credibility in economics by campaigning against carbon pricing. That politically, it's a hot potato, but that uh, economists are, are pretty much on board with the idea of, of pricing carbon. His follow-up piece was that the carbon tax debate isn't about the size of government. That there's a way to couch this in much more conservative terms. And as you heard, Brian Jean concede that, well, maybe it's something they would look at. A true revenue-neutral carbon tax. Where here's how we're going to reduce emissions. All we're going to do is put a price on carbon. And industry can figure it out for themselves. In conjunction with that... We're going to reduce corporate taxes. We're going to reduce personal income taxes to really make this revenue neutral. Would, would that make it saleable? I, I get that it's, it's a tough political sell, uh, especially the way the NDP have set it up. So is it the NDP carbon tax that you have a problem with, or is it carbon pricing in general, regardless of whether a conservative frames it in more conservative terms? 974-8255. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.